0: Many of these intimate stories of extraterritoriality are not about legal status. They're about who lives and who dies, and who is able to save themselves from conscription, who is able to travel from a war zone, who is able to escape deportation.
1: Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today I am speaking with Sarah Abravaya stein She is Professor and Maurice Amado Endowed Chair in Sephardic Studies at UCLA. Sarah, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: Sarah is not just the author of one book, but many books. And they often reveal how Jews in the Middle East, North Africa, and the Balkans adapted to new and changing imperial environments in the 19th and 20th centuries. And this often involves tracing Jews across global networks and demonstrating how they're actually key actors in the development of modern ideas and institutions. And this is really the case of her most recent book and the topic of our discussion today, which is the question of citizenship, legal misfits, extraterritoriality. And the book's title is Extraterritorial Dreams, European Citizenship, Sephardic Jews, and the Ottoman 20th Century, which was out by University of Chicago Press in 2016. So Sarah, let's start with the most basic question here. You call this a sort of history of protégés, what you often call a history of legal misfits. What does that mean, and and what is the extraterritoriality in the title?
0: Great, thank you, and thanks so much for the invitation to be on the podcast and for being here. So the various legal categories I explore in this book owe a debt to early mo- modern legal categories, to a system of promises that were made between Ottoman powers and the European and American powers um, dating back to the 16th century, known in English as the Capitulations. Mm -hmm. Um, And these agreements set out that the Ottoman Empire would extend to capitulatory nations rights that allowed for the protection of their merchants that might be in Ottoman lands, Mm -hmm. and conversely, that the European powers would also extend certain rights upon Uh, non-Muslim Ottomans living in their territories. And these rights, the rights of extraterritoriality, as they are known, these rights included the protection of person and of property, a degree of legal autonomy, and including the right to be judged in consular courts Mm. in many matters. So these agreements are reviewed and renewed by the sultanic leadership of the Ottoman Empire over many centuries. And they are constantly shifting. They are being reevaluated by both of the parties involved in the treaties. And the nature of extraterritoriality is also constantly shifting, and who pursues that status to Mm. be a protected person is changing. And yet, for this very long period from the early modern period, until, I argue, into the 20th century, this tradition, this legal tradition of the protection of this ambiguous legal party uh, persists. Mm.
1: So for this reason, you call them legal misfits because they're just not quite within uh, one empire, or one nation's legal system that they're moving in between. They're doing things like venue shopping and Right. Like well,
0: that. so in a certain sense, these protected persons are are not ambiguous, or and they're not anomalous at all. In right. a certain sense, they reflect certainly an early modern world order in which the vast majority of people know do not belong in any legal sense to a state Mm -hmm. the reason they become legal misfits in the late 19th and 20th century is because this is a time of the expansion of the modern passport regime Mm. and the solidification of understandings of citizenship across europe as well as of course in the ottoman empire and it is only in that modern context That these people who for centuries existed quite fluidly within this trans regional, trans imperial, transnational legal reality suddenly become awkward figures and they are awkward around, they are especially awkward at certain moments, especially around war, during refugee crises, and during border changes, all of which, of course, become ubiquitous historical trends of this period.
1: So I want to get into those examples, but just to clarify something, you know, your book is on Jewish protégés, Jewish subjects of the Ottoman Empire and other places that were able to use this special extraterritorial status, but it wasn't just a story of Jews, right? That's exactly right.
0: My focus here is on, and the language is actually quite finicky, um, and it was difficult for me methodologically to define my terms, but we can perhaps talk about that later if we wish or not. But my focus is upon Ottoman Jews, Ottoman-born Jews, or the descendants of Ottoman-born Jews. And Mm -hmm. that becomes important because, especially into the 20th century, it happens that there are people who carry this legal status inherited from fathers or grandfathers Mm -hmm. or brothers who might never have been Ottoman subjects. And yet carry this Ottoman-conditioned legal status. We'll get into that later. So my focus is on Ottoman-born Jews or their descendants. But one of the central arguments that I make in the book is that you really cannot tease the Jewish story out from the larger fabric because the protector nations always had on their mind this vast array of both tantalizing and potentially problematic protected persons, Mm. whenever they made decisions about the status of a, a single protected person or a family of protected people or a community of protected people, they always had on their minds what had been the precedent with other groups and what might be the blowback with other groups. And these groups... Span religious categories, regional categories, so they reflect this this really fascinating imbrication of multiple regional, religious, historical cultures
1: and and histories. Hmm. So, why don't we get into some examples? Uh, can you just kind of give us the story of one of these proteges and how they sort of navigated this system of extraterritorial? rights and regimes
0: sure um so the way the book is organized i i don't claim to write a comprehensive right. history mm. of jewish proteges nor to represent every case in which this incredibly complex history unfolded instead i sort of zoom in on four moments in which pro jewish protege histories became complex and interesting and thorny especially for the states involved, Mm. but also for for the Jewish holders of these papers or seekers of these papers, or Jews who had held papers and had them revoked. So perhaps the example that I can offer you is in the context of um, the Balkan Wars and the city of Salonika, which experiences a period of time in which its legal status is indeterminate. Mm. The Ottoman forces have withdrawn. Greek forces are present, but there is not yet Greek control over the city. And there is this question of, uh, legally speaking, what will become of the citizens of Salonika? Who will control them? What legal papers will they hold?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Salonika, as listeners of your podcast might know from an earlier conversation with Devin Nahr, mm-hmm. Salonika was among the most important ports in the Ottoman Empire, and also an incredibly important city from the perspective of Jewish history and Mediterranean Jewish history, Mm -hmm. historically one of the few cities in the world to claim a majority or at least a plurality of Jews in its population. So at this time of the Balkan Wars, when the status of Salonika is uncertain, what we see is an incredibly interesting international competition to recruit as protected persons the Jews of Salonika, by various foreign states. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting moment, partly because it represents the retraction of certain powers like Italy and France and Britain, which for centuries had been cultivating relationships with protégés in the Ottoman lands, non-Muslim protégés. And it represents uh, the rise of interest in powers that are, are trying to get a hold on, on a shifting Mediterranean, in particular, Spain, Portugal, and Austro-Hungary, all of which send in consulates who are aggressively pursuing the recruitment of Jewish protégés who can become a kind of local proxy for mm. foreign power when once the fate of the city is, is described. And you asked me to talk about an individual... One of the things that happens uh, at this time in the summer of 1913 is that the Portuguese consul in Salonica, who himself is from Salonica and a, a Sephardic Jew, uh, his name is Solomon Arditi. He has this interesting, ambiguous role. He is a local mm-hmm. and he's also a proxy for a foreign power as a Portuguese consulate. Okay. And he gets really excited because he thinks he can both serve his employers and serve his fellow Salonicans. And he goes out of his way to bring in these incredibly sophisticated printing presses. Summer of 1913, Salonica has been you know, divided by war, yeah. and what is Solomon Arditi doing, but suddenly printing all of these really handsome passports. <laughs> um, the passports, according to the directive of the Portuguese Foreign Ministry, are actually supposed to be, quote, provisional.
1: Let me just back up for sure, a second. Please. Like, Why are the Spanish and Portuguese so interested in you know 1913 of acquiring all these subjects? Isn't this even a bit late for people to be interested in acquiring these these protégés?
0: Right. The motives for these powers and also for Austri- Austro-Hungary are actually various. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that at this moment in time, rather like the present day, it appears that states can have multiple... Competing reasons to think that Sephardic citizens are appealing. There's a commercial interest There's a symbolic interest Mm -hmm. in Regards to Portugal in particular. There's also a colonial interest. There's this sense that solidifying a relationship to its so-called lost Jews could help the state um, regain its former imperial grandeur by commercial building and potentially also have a new theoretically European population uh-huh. that can be used to settle. It's slowly receding, but it's colonies. So it's a, each one has a complex history unique to its story. Mm-hmm. And in the book, partly what I'm trying to demonstrate is that the pursuit of protégés can reflect these shifting imperial ambitions of mm. states sometimes even at the very moment that their empire is um, on the verge of collapse. Verge of collapse. Right. And in, indeed, exactly at that time, because Jews seem to promise both symbolic and actual capital.
1: Mm-hmm. Just to flesh this out a little bit more, say I'm a, I'm a Jew in Salonica in 1913. Right. Why would I be interested in acquiring Spanish protege ship?
0: Right. To some extent, the reasons that a Jew at this moment would want foreign protection are not so very different from the reason a Jew might want foreign protection a couple of centuries earlier. Mm -hmm. Yet, certain motives are heightened by insecurity wrought by war. The acquisition of a foreign passport can seem to offer security in a time of territorial contest and when borders are shifting. That's number one. Number two... A foreign passport can potentially buy you, if you are male, or your son, out of state conscription. And there was a lot of worry at this time about whether if Greece uh, seized Salonika, if its young men, its Jewish young men, would be immediately conscripted into the army. There's also a commercial motive that potentially, and this relates to the first point about political stability, that the possession of a foreign passport can offer you protection of commerce and of business at a time when you might otherwise be subject to highly constraining state laws, which indeed did come into effect in Salonika mm-hmm. after it becomes Greek. I think also there's an emotive response to un- instability, too, that factors into this protege history, which often gets left out yeah. of historical studies, which tend to focus on law and policy, which is to say that it is one of the avenues that people pursued in insecure moments, especially Jews. Mm. Many Jews left Salonika. Um, many Jews chose other means of hedging against a shifting order. But the pursuit of foreign papers, though it's only pursued by a minority of Salonika's Jews, represents another response mm-hmm. to crisis and uncertainty.
1: I see. So there's multiple responses here. Immigration is one, becoming patriots of the Ottoman state or the Greek state is another. That's and then right. And this becoming sort of foreign clients or protégés is the third minority option. Exactly,
0: exactly. And I mean, as part of that second point, I would say political responses, not just accepting statehood, but Mm -hmm. also politicizing in some fashion, whether throwing your lot with socialism or with Zionism or with, as some Jews did eventually, with the project of of Greek statehood. Mm -hmm. I would say that's a different kind of option. And um, after the Balkan Wars, after these many hundreds of families have... Accepted this these foreign papers at that moment and after there's a lot of judgment of those who Mm. do accept foreign papers Because it is seen as a betrayal of fill in your blank cause it's a betrayal of localism It's a a betrayal of socialism. It's a betrayal of Greek nationalism. It's a betrayal of Jewish communitarianism because you give up your right to vote or to have, a, have um, sway within a formal Jewish community, potentially. Mm-hmm. Actually, right. many of them didn't. But okay. So it's controversial precisely because it's only one of a spectrum of choices that people pursue.
1: And I'm presuming that these states themselves, whether the Ottoman Empire the Greek state, was also trying to put an end to these foreign protégés and to the extraterritorial courts.
0: Yes. So there's a long history of Ottoman opposition to extraterritoriality uh, that dates back actually almost to the very moment that the first capitulatory agreements are signed. There's a constant effort to watch tightly over this process to Mm -hmm. make sure that only certain numbers of Uh, Protected persons are approved to make sure that they are not violating the terms of the agreement in one way or another, potentially to rescind protection, especially at times of war, or potentially to expel people Mm -hmm. with foreign protection. So that is a leitmotif of the history of extraterritoriality, which has its very nuanced history in the late 19th and early 20th century.
1: welcome back to the ottoman history podcast i'm nir shafir and i'm speaking with sarah brevea stein about her most recent book called extraterritorial dreams and we've been talking so far about proteges in the ottoman empire that is people who have taken on european papers and benefited from the sort of extraterritorial status that they had in the 19th and 20th century so so far what we've been exploring is how these legal proteges these misfits have adapted in very specific situations, let's say, Salonika in 1913, after the Balkan Wars. But what happens when these people move around? What, what happens when they leave the Ottoman Empire or move to different parts of the Ottoman Empire or go even further?
0: It's a really complex question. One of the things that was so striking to me about this research process is that I realized that not only is there not a clear pattern across the states of Europe, which mm. perhaps we would expect, mm-hmm. but even within, under the umbrella of a single state Consular representatives across stations representing this home state don't understand the policy. They have their own ideas how to interpret foreign ministry directives. And sometimes they have a stake in the game. So it gets worked out variously. And we see that through migration, Ottoman-born Jews or Ottoman-descended Jews experience situations that that show how diffuse this idea of extraterritoriality becomes uh, once people leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can give you an example. Please. Um following up on a kind of postscript to the to the Balkan war story I was telling a moment ago, um I've been following the history of one family that has several members of the family Acquire different kinds of, of foreign papers during the Balkan Wars. And these papers come to play important roles for them over the next decades. So, for example, one of the sons in this family uses his papers to emigrate to Brazil and lives in Brazil as a, a Portuguese protected person. Actually, his papers said provisional citizen of Portugal, Mm -hmm. which is a unique term invented for the Salonican context. Those papers were renewed again and again. He traveled to Europe on them many times. His wife traveled to Europe on them many times until in the 1930s, Portugal engages in an audit of its consular roles that I and some other scholars who have looked at this interpret as thinly veiled anti-Semitic action. And what they decide is they will revoke these provisional papers. And so finally, after renewing these papers for many years, this man, Leon, in, in, in Rio, goes to the consular agent and says, I'm ready, you know, for the eighth time to renew my papers, and they take them away. Hmm. The city of his birth, Salonika, was Ottoman when he was born, but it has since become Greek. He's never been a Greek citizen. Yeah. He's never lived in Greece. And he panics, and and in, and a really incredible chain of events unfolds in which he is trying to obtain documentation to prove not that he's Greek because he has no evidence of that, but that he's a citizen of Salonica. Because if he can prove that he is a Jewish citizen of Salonica, he feels as if he can demonstrate the case that he Ergo should be now a subject of Greece. And he in uh, in fact does is able ultimately to acquire. Uh, Greek papers. He has a cousin who also received papers in the Balk during the Balkan Wars from the Portuguese minister. Also renews these for many years. Somehow doesn't get caught up in the in the audit that happens in the 1930s. And during the Second World War, he's living in Paris when the Nazi forces seize Paris. Mm-hmm. And fast forward over a period of of months and years, his entire family will be deported because they hold. Greek papers, and this one cousin is the only one who survives because he is able to parlay these provisional papers, which his own cousin had taken away because they were legally illegitimate. He is able to parlay them into access to Portugal, where he waits out the war and mm. survives, and is among very few members of his family who had been in Paris to survive. So, this story of what happens to papers is very complicated within single families, within single national stories, like here's the story of Portugal, you think one thing would unfold, but it doesn't. And there are many Ottoman border, Ottoman descended Jews who cross borders constantly, you know, more than once, and experience different conflicts. And this just becomes eminently complex with time. And, and the book covers this vast geography from Salonika to Baghdad, from Baghdad to Shanghai, mm-hmm. and in, including stops in, in Manchester and, and London and beyond, partly because to tell the story of the protege is to tell the story of movement across boundaries.
1: Mm. So speaking of movement, what was the process of doing research? How did you find these documents and all this material? Where, where did you start looking for?
0: In a way, it would have been a difficult book to research, I think, had I set out knowing I was going to write it as a book, which I Mm. didn't. I set out discovering time and time again over the process of writing various books in various kinds of of state and non-state archives, I kept coming across the person of the Ottoman Jewish protege Mm. over and over again. And it captured my interest, and I would save these incredible complex stories, many of them involving legal complexities and sometimes legal trials. But the potential archival body is so vast because one could look not only at the foreign ministry of any European state that was a capitulatory state, and I've explored archives of Austro-Hungary and Portugal and Spain and France and Britain and and Germany and Italy, but I left, you know, I didn't even cover (laughs) everything. But not only that. But local consular offices have their own, in many cases, have their own papers. Mm. And if you only use the foreign ministry documents, if you only use the documents of high state, you don't realize that what happens on the ground in a local consular office often doesn't reflect state mandate Mm. and tells a very different local story. And so I needed to pair those foreign ministry archives with local consular archives And then the third archival body is family papers that I needed to turn to Mm. because many of these intimate stories of extraterritoriality are not about legal status. They're about who lives and who dies and who is able to save themselves from conscription, who is able to travel from a war zone, who is able to escape deportation, how women fit into this matrix. And a lot of those documents have not been collected by formal archives and remain in family hands, including there are many families I continue to find who have preserved their ancestors' documentary uh, legal papers, which I think, I suspect, I would speculate, continue to actually have a pull. They have a draw for people as being of importance and of potential value, even after all these years.
1: So all these different stories of papers and forms of attachment and legal uh, affiliation with these different European nations brings up this question of what exactly did citizenship mean back then, especially as this proliferation of protégés is occurring in the 19th to 20th century. This is also the time of the establishment of the passport regime of border controls.
0: So extraterritoriality was never meant to be the same as citizenship protecting someone a state's extension of protected status to a subject was never meant to be the state offering that person citizenship but what happens is that many jewish proteges and non-jewish proteges treat their protected papers as if they are documents of Mm -hmm. citizenship I uncovered this really beautiful object in the Manchester Jewish Museum, which is the passport case of a, of an Iraqi Jewish emigre named Hamvi, Avraham Hamvi, and he carried this li- little leather pouch with his name embossed in gold letters on the outside, and the reverse side said passport, and when I opened up the, the case, the pa- papers that were contained within were actually not citizenship pa- papers, they mm. were laissez-passer papers, they were travel papers, and The question is, did he realize there was a difference, but he thought if he cloaked it in this beautiful, you know, little wallet, it would seem more official and possibly have the effect of Mm. functioning as a more official document. So was it a strategic maneuver? Do the paper carriers themselves not necessarily understand the subtle legal differences? And additionally it's evident that so many state representatives themselves don't understand, and they are vexed about this, and they are constantly writing their superiors, looking back at consular documentation to say, what does protected status even mean? And they really they really don't understand because there isn't a strict definition, and it's always shifting. And so- when all is said and done, I think that to think about extraterritoriality is ultimately to think about citizenship itself mm. and how it's a very messy category across Europe, across the Middle East in the late 19th and first half of the 20th century.
1: Mm. This is interesting because today we are living in a period when the concept of citizenship itself is changing. Not only is there massive refugee crises, but also you know all sorts of different stateless peoples. And we're living in a period when rich people can essentially buy citizenship in different formats through investment. So I was wondering what is the implications of this story of extraterritoriality of of these Jewish proteges on the story of citizenship today?
0: Well, one of the conclusions I draw in the book is that it would behoove us to think of citizenship not as a legal status, but mm. as a spectrum that people move across and that they move across it Um, not only in one direction and sometimes the path takes them in reverse so that you can lose a legal status as well as gain it. I also think there's an interesting story here about the importance of fate and luck Mm. in acquiring legal status because the people whose stories I follow sometimes strategically manipulate a complex legal system to gain advantage. That said, one thing I think is really important to make clear is that this history of extraterritoriality talks about Jews in a very different position relative to other people with ambiguous legal status, such as the stateless, or the expelled, or refugees, or the transferred, or the exchanged. Mm. These are all ambiguous legal categories that emerge at the time of my story. And these Jews aren't in any of those categories. What they are doing in pursuing extraterritorial status is pursuing an option. And in almost every case, I, I mentioned a few where they didn't have other options, but in almost every case, they had the legal option to acquire the citizenship of the state in which they resided. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it gets taken you know, sometimes they encounter troubles, they're branded enemy aliens or visas of stake expire. So they're certainly exceptions, but I would say what isn't generalizable about this book, it doesn't offer a kind of historical roadmap of the experience of any ambiguous legal status. It really is very specifically rooted in an Ottoman Mm. non-Muslim legacy.
1: But at the same time, it's also, I think, as you say in your book, that this is the story of an ottoman legacy on modern regimes of citizenship and and national belonging
0: it is and i include within my subtitle this concept of the ottoman 20th century in order to emphasize that the inheritance of this ottoman legal order which dates back to the early modern period extends beyond the life of the empire Mm. and it has the effect of influencing not only state policies after empire ceases to exist but also on the fate of individual Jews whose lives literally can save or lose their lives depending on the legal status of papers born of this tangled Ottoman history into the mid-20th century and in and in Egypt beyond.
1: Okay, well, this is a fascinating topic. Unfortunately, we're running out of time, but I encourage everyone to read Sarah's most recent book, Extraterritorial Dreams, uh, European citizenship, Sephardic Jews, and the Ottoman 20th century. Thank you. And uh, I think what you've really done is kind of taken this category of extraterritorial subjects, protégés, people who are usually maligned in the historical record by either the states or by local Jewish communities, and shown them as interesting actors with their own desires and their own histories and fascinating topic of exploration for historians and for any one interested in thinking through the 20th century thank you we encourage our listeners to go to our website where you can find a short bibliography of related sources if you want to learn more about this topic and you can also join our facebook group where you can meet all sorts of like-minded listeners and find out more about every new episode that we release thank you again for coming on the podcast Sarah.
0: my pleasure thank you
1: and we hope you tune in next time